You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's show. I am very excited to be here, and we got a full crew this week. Yay! So uh, let's, let's get right to it. Last week, I talked about the red-lipped batfish, and I mentioned that it is a type of anglerfish. And this week, I want to talk about another anglerfish, actually. Uh, this is the one oh. that people are probably actually more familiar with. Oh, the, the uh, big if you remember... toothy one? Yeah. yeah. I, I think if you remember the animated movie Finding Nemo, yeah. uh, at one point, Dory and Marlin are swimming in the dark, and they see this beautiful light floating in the water and they become kind of mesmerized by it and it's like it's sort of dancing back and forth and they're laughing oh it's so fun and eventually they realize that it's the light of an angler fish as this giant toothy face appears in the darkness behind them uh, it's a really memorable scene in part because of the wild uh, look of the fish with these like just enormous pointy sharp teeth it's it's just a a monstrous terrifying looking thing and the animated anglerfish is a pretty amazing uh, amazing in part because of the huge pointed teeth but those teeth are a little problematic from a natural history standpoint mm -hmm. uh, perhaps to look even scarier the animators drew them pointing outwards which gives this feeling like they're reaching out to grab you and in reality anglerfish teeth tend to point inwards so that once a fish enters or starts into the mouth it's even harder to back out because the uh. teeth are facing backwards and they will say they also made the teeth extra long uh, uh -huh. and then made the eyes weirdly really big when the eyes are actually quite small on these fish um which i think gave it this big scary predator kind of like look i think if it had teeny tiny eyes it would make it look kind of like silly and they wanted it to be scary so it's you know not an accurate scientific rotation but probably the fish that inspired the angler fish in finding nemo was one of a number of angler fish known as the black sea devils which is about one of the coolest animal names we've ever talked That's about on the show. Great name. Um, uh -huh. Yeah, actually, when I first read about these, I, I remember thinking that it was Black Sea Evils. <laughs> like I didn't see the D, and I'm like, man, Black Sea Evil. That is a pretty awesome <laughs> name. A, like, oh, it's that is a oh, metal name. Yeah, that's pretty. <laughs> that's pretty cool too. Uh, so, Finding Nemo came out in 2003, but. Uh, from what I was able to find, pre-production and writing began in 1997. Just two oh, years wow. before that, uh, in 1995, Time magazine pretty famously featured the humpback anglerfish on its cover. And the humpback anglerfish uh, is one of the most famous black sea devils. So there's a good chance that's why the fish ended up in Finding Nemo is because it was had kind of entered the public consciousness at, around that time. There are right. a lot of weird things about anglerfish. I talked about uh, some of them last week, but this week I want to focus on something completely different uh, that I did not mention uh, last week because it's I don't it's not true of the the batfish, and this is something about their biology that is different and just utterly 
bizarre. Does this have to do with their sex lives? It does, yes. <laughs> oh, I know what this is so, about then. Oh, ho, 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 ho. When researchers were first studying them, uh, they noted everything they could. Much of this research actually took place back in the 18, late 1800s. They measured the fish. They weighed the fish. They noted they sometimes had between like one and eight parasites stuck to their sides. They <laughs> measured the length of fins. They measured the lure-like appendages on their heads. They basically wanted to note everything they could, which is what you do when you're trying to describe a new species. Mm-hmm. The humpback anglerfish had been first described by scientists back in 1863. And while studying them, they also noted what sex the samples were that they had caught. And bizarrely, they were all females. Oh, now they did were they? find. <laughs> yeah. yeah hmm. They did eventually find male anglerfish. Uh, so they knew that there were male anglerfish in the world. Uh, but the males they found were from a seemingly unrelated smaller species. Uh, where were the male humpback anglerfish and why did no one ever see them? It wasn't until 60... <laughs> you guys are laughing because you know where this is going. Uh, it wasn't until 60 years later in 1928 that Charles Tate Reagan uh, made a startling discovery. The missing males had been right under everyone's noses hiding in plain sight the whole time. Now, before I say where the males were, I want you to consider... The, the habitat of the humpback anglerfish. These fish live up to 5,000 feet underwater. That's 1,500 meters in non-crazy units. Or, and I did the math on this, 937 and a half Rachels. Yeah. So, for reference. That is so many Rachels. Uh, there, that is. Uh, there is no significant light below 200 meters and an absolute lack of light below a thousand meters so these fish can be 500 meters below Mm. that they live their lives in darkness and when you live in this tricky environment one of the challenges you face is even finding a mate and i don't mean finding like the right mate to share your life and love of seafood with i mean (laughs) any mate at all any of them Uh, the odds of finding a mate and finding them at the right time you're ready to lay eggs is not good when you live in a place that is completely devoid of any form of light uh, from the surface. So because of this, uh, some anglerfish have devised a rather fascinating solution. Mm-hmm. Now, what Charles Tate Reagan uh, discovered in 1928 was that a small parasitic fish attached to the side of the anglerfish he was studying was actually the male version of the much larger fish he was studying. Yeah, Turns out there is extreme, extreme sexual dimorphism in anglerfish, which it's, is just a fancy way of saying that the males and females are radically different sizes. It is pretty extreme. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's, it's very extreme. Uh, the males are just teeny tiny. And scientists had seen the males before. They just assumed they were a different species of fish. Parasi- well, they thought they were parasites, two- right? Yeah, right, right. As of 2009, <laughs> almost 100 years later, uh, and I'll point out 2009 was the newest data I could find, mm. only eight males have ever been found of the humpback anglerfish. Whoa. So I'll point out our sample size oh. is not large. It turns out uh, that the humpback anglerfish, uh, the small males, what they do is they bite the females and then they go for a short ride. Uh, when it's time to fertilize the eggs, um, and then they just drop off. 
But in other related uh, sea devil anglerfish, evolution has taken this to a rather bizarre extreme. Remember Ooh. how I said the chances of finding a mate are small? Yeah. Well, in some species, the males have an amazing sense of smell. Uh, and once the males are old enough to seek out a female, they do so right away. They, they really spend no time doing anything else but pr pursuing females. Some of them also have large eyes, so it's thought they could possibly see the light given off by the females. Mm -hmm. Now, once they find her, though, she may not be ready to mate. So what to do? The males of these species can hardly even survive on their own. They are so small and really terrible predators. So the only thing they are good at is finding the females. And in these species, the males bite the females, just like in the humpback anglerfish. But instead <coughs> of detaching, what happens is they release a digestive enzyme in their mouths that begins to dissolve the side of the female. Whoa. At the same time, it also begins to... to, to dissolve the edges of the male's mouth and eventually the two fuse together at the vascular level and the male becomes a permanent parasite on the side of the female. Wild. Once you have yeah. found her, never let her go. Once you have found her, never let her go. You're welcome. Amazing. Uh, so the male is a Beautiful. parasite in the sense that he actually becomes a part of the circulatory system of the female. Like they start sharing blood. He becomes part of her body. But I'm not sure parasite is really the right word. And you do see that word thrown about in the, you know, the literature some. Um, right. Because this arrangement is mutually beneficial. Yeah. The male right. who can't survive on his own receives nourishment and is kept alive by the female and in return, she always has a male present to fertilize her eggs whenever she is ready. In fact, in some species, researchers have found up to eight males attached to one female. Huh. Huh. Uh, and nice. she just has all these, you know, sperm creating. A lot of baby daddies. Uh, yeah, males just <laughs> that are literally at this point part of her body. The males have essentially mm -hmm. become parasitic gonads attached to her body. <laughs> More so or it's less, almost yeah. like by merging with her, she has her own ability to like fertilize her own eggs. Sort of That's becomes really a hermaphrodite kind of in some ways. Is, yeah. yeah. I mean, really, their only function is just to attach on and, and fertilize eggs. So it becomes part of her body. So she can kind of fertilize her own eggs with this new part of her body that has found her and attached to her. It is one of the weirdest, weirdest Wild. things. Wild. I've ever heard of in nature. Uh, I guess when you live in the deep, dark depths of the ocean where finding a mate is difficult, being literally fused together so you can't lose track of each other is actually a pretty amazing adaptation. And yeah. One that, again, blows my mind. 100%. Uh, I, I just, look, this is why I'm a naturalist. This is why we do this podcast is I absolutely love all the unique variations there are in this world. There's so many different ways to... To be, <laughs> Let's oh. put it there, to be, uh, so mm -hmm. anglerfish, yes, um, you know they they that lit up glowing lure gets all the attention, but in my mind, uh, the mating strategies, at least of some of the the, the sea devils, are um, actually even str stranger than yeah. uh, the lure, and uh, that's what makes this particular creature really stranger than fiction.
So that's what I have for you. My sources this week were the Smithsonian, uh, the book Oceanic Anglerfishes, Extraordinary Diversity in the Deep Sea, uh, NOAA, and Wikipedia. Oh, thanks. That thanks, was great. Kirk. I, I can't welcome. believe I didn't have that on my list. I was going to say I have to strike it off my list, but I didn't have it for some reason. I probably I have we anglerfish. About anglerfish at some point, and here we are. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thanks, Kirk. Well, yeah, we're going to go to break, and when I come back, Rachel's got something for us. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. So, thank you. Okay. So my brother, somewhat recently, I say somewhat recently, this was like six months ago at this point, went on a trip to Hawaii and he loved it. He had so much fun. I, of course. Yeah, it's a great place. Exactly. See, I, of course, am jealous because I've never been to Hawaii and I would love to go. However, I do acknowledge that my brother's trip and my trip would be very different types of trips. (laughs) Right. Did he right, spend all yeah. his time on a beach? He did not. Okay. He he went to like uh the Pearl Harbor Museum and uh, the okay. the Dole Factory and things like that. Got it. And the memorial, not the museum. An but, informative yeah. historical manufacturing type of vacation. Yeah. Whereas Rachel I would think... be snorkeling and staring at plants and yes. uh Tide exactly. pools and such, yeah. 100%. Like you'd get me away from a tide pool. Anyway, <laughs> so this, of course, got me thinking Rachel, about... Rachel, sometime I'll show you my tide pool photos from <gasps> Hawaii. How have you not shown me your tide pool <laughs> photos already? Oh, I don't know. I that's, we a whole, that's a whole side topic, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so this, of you course... Wanna, do you want to see my tide pool photo collection? Yes. <laughs> I know. Yeah, you do. This, of course, uh, got me thinking about the ocean. I'm almost always <laughs> like thinking about it. Like it takes much. <laughs> <laughs> like it doesn't take much. And it actually got me thinking about my list uh, that we all have. So I'm covering a creature that has been on my list for probably a year now. And it's just so cute. <laughs> I, and oh, yeah, I know. Okay. Big surprise. Uh, Rachel's doing an ocean creature. I don't care. It's fun. Uh, so I've... Right. So I've talked about squid before and I'm talking about a squid this time. And I've I've looked. This is the fourth squid that we've talked about on this show. <laughs> and I talked I ta- about I, I uh, talked about the god face squid, I think, didn't I? Yeah, yeah. you did. Oh uh, yeah, that was the very first one was the gob face squid. Oh, I still have nightmares about that one. You should it was yeah. horrifying. It was pretty yeah. grim. Horrifying. This one's cute. Very small though. Yeah. This oh, one's good, because it wouldn't small. take much to be cuter than a godface squid. <laughs> <laughs> so this oh, is the, the fourth squid we've had, but this one is also fascinating in its own right. Uh, like I said, this squid is pretty small. It's 1.4 inches, Kirk, in smart oh, people. Wow. That's 3.5 centimeters in Look, mantle length. I'm not length. saying only smart people use metric. I'm just saying it's stupid that we don't. There's a, there's oh, a difference. Oh, I agree. Like, I think we should use metric. It makes more sense. It's based on 10. Most of the world uses it. That's what science uses. Anyway, that's a different rant. 
so this doesn't include tentacles or anything like that. So it's pretty small. It's a pretty small squid. It's pear shaped. So just the body, not including the tentacles, is like an inch and a half or so. You said. Yeah. Okay. So it's it's gotcha. pretty small, and like the tentacles aren't tiny. super big either. It's not a big thing. So it's pear shaped. Sure. And it has the typical bigger dark eyes, kind of a mottled brown in color, but the color kind of changes. I'm talking about today the Hawaiian bobtail squid. Have either of you Aww. heard of the bobtail squid? Never. I don't think so. Oh. <laughs> okay. So I'm, I'm looking at a picture of one right now, though. They are they're real pretty cute. cute. Yeah, they're pretty cute. Aww. Yeah. So what makes the Hawaiian bobtail squid really special is not so much. So they do what a lot of squid do. They spend their time at one layer of the ocean and then dive down or dive up rather. um, Swim up, swim up more to get fit, to feed on like shrimp and things like that at night. However, they yeah. do get eaten around Hawaii. There's also the um, the Hawaiian monk seal, mm-hmm. which is a pretty big predator for this particular species. Yeah, yeah. So in order to hide from the Hawaiian monk, yeah, the Hawaiian monk seal. The bobtail squid has developed a really interesting symbiotic relationship. So it's really fascinating that you talked about something, a mutualistic relationship just now in an oceanic creature. Uh Because within, like, within hours of being born from being released from an egg, what Hawaiian bobtail squid do is they... Uh, release this mucus that actually ar- so it secretes a mucus around its light organs. So these squid have little light organs mm-hmm. and okay. capture bacteria with this mucus. Okay. And by capturing this bacteria when they go up from the seafloor to hunt, the bacteria is um, bioluminescent of sorts and is able to make the squid disappear. Oh, disappear? Okay. You know what? It when you has asked its if own... I had heard of this before, I was like, you know what? That sounds... It has... Oh, it's a real-life invisibility I'll say, cloak. Oh. <laughs> That's so cool. Mm-hmm. When you mentioned the bobtail squid, I was like, this sounds, yeah, I think I've heard of it. Where have I heard of this? I literally just read about these uh, when I was doing some research for my anglerfish stories <laughs> this week and last week because they're another animal that uses bioluminescence uh, with uh, photobacteria. Bacteria. So very cool. Exactly. Yeah. What a funny coincidence. Isn't it so fun? So they, <laughs> it's a symbiotic relationship. So it's a particular species of bioluminescent bacteria Olivia Olivia Brio Fisheri 
Okay. Uh, which inhabit the light organ in the squid's mantle. The bacteria get fed by the squid. Um, the squid will create like a sugar and an amino acid solution. Uh, and in return, they are able to hide the squid's silhouette when viewed a below, from below. So they're mm. able, the bacteria are able to match the amount of light hitting the top of the mantle and create a counter illumination that pretty much makes the squid disappear. Amazing. So basically it looks like from below, it looks like it's the same light from say moonlight that's coming through the water. It it matches the exact same illumination. So it just just disappears into the background. Exactly. That's coming from the sky. Yeah. That is, I mean, so amazing. It's blowing my mind. I, I, I get that. I get the mechanism behind like, oh, okay, it's giving off some light and that makes it look like the surface. But the fact that it's like somehow regulating the amount of light to exactly yeah. match what's at the surface. Exactly. That, How? Isn't that so is the, cool? Is the squid doing that or is are the bacteria doing that? So from what I can tell, uh, the bobtail squid all of the bacteria are housed within the squid's light organs because it's okay. Okay. Housed within the light organs. What is happening is that the bacteria are getting hit with the amount of light that is coming in uh, from above, from the moonlight and all that kind of stuff and sure. are, are matching that flora, that amount of light. In order to help with that, the squid is able to adjust the intensity of the bioluminescence. It modifies like the ink sac, um, kind of like a, a diaphragm around that organ to help create um, to help create that invisibility cloak effect. But the okay, bacteria so this, are the ones can that are just how that. much of the light is seen then. Yes. Okay. Uh, All right. Okay. That makes more sense. Yes. So the squid is able to adjust that. I thought from what I was reading, it was the bacteria and most of, most of the research is mostly about how the bacteria is adjusting with all of that, but it is the squid kind of moving things along to help make them disappear. All right, and as far as I understand, does the, the light organ have like a some sort of like lens that sort of projects the light downward as well? So it yeah, they have a lens and like a reflector and lens tissues around it to help redirect the light and focus it. So that way it goes through the mantle, so that way they're able to look like they're invisible. Well, that makes sense too, because if they have yeah. sort of this little like lens like system and they can literally project that light downward. You wouldn't want the light to be going up because then anything above you is going to look down to the bottom of the ocean and see this brightly lit up squid and be like, Ooh, lunch. So you really want to make sure that light is only projecting downward. Down. And it seems like they yeah. have a way of doing that. So mm-hmm. cool. Which is really wow. cool. Also like part of all of this that is wild to me and has been pretty well documented is that, so 
they put all of this effort, Hawaiian bobtail squid put all of this effort into getting and making or like attracting this bacteria. And then daily they vent their cells, which means that they get rid of up to 95%. Oh my gosh. Of the bacteria in the light organ every day. What? Mm-hmm. So are they attracting new bacteria in then, or is it just that by the next day it's all reproduced and grown fresh back? Would... Like, are they making room for more to grow, or are they making room for more to come in? So they're... Grow, I would think. They're still trying to figure that out, but generally speaking, okay. they are able to... There's enough that stays behind and then they'll attract more to come in, but they are able to um, reproduce fast enough that by the time, because this is for during the day. So in the morning after they're done hunting, they'll vent the bacteria, go and hang out in the seafloor, just chill, which helps conserve a lot of energy for the squid because the bacteria, when it's producing that, um, when when the squid is producing the sugar and amino acid like solution mixture, For the bacteria, that's actually really highly energetic for the squid. So, in order to help conserve energy and like buy back, I guess they vent out most of the bacteria. Just hold on to some, and then by the end of the or by the end of the day, they have built back that entire like colony, and they start all over again. Wild. I wonder if it's, it has to do with the lifespan of the bacteria where it's just like they're dying off and not giving off light anymore. So you have to vent them out, you know, to start over because they don't live that long, maybe. Or and they need to nice, nice, fresh bacteria, fresh batteries, if you will, for the next night hunt. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's entirely that possible. Um, that is part of it, I think. But we still don't quite know why yeah. they do it necessarily, other than the fact that it's energetically better for them these squid don't live super long in the first place they only live for like three to ten months in the first place so okay they only breed once and it it doesn't take a lot of time for them uh and like i said earlier as soon as they're hatched like within 12 hours they have their first colony of the bacteria so it's it's just wild and the fact that they're able to disappear so well and so completely astonishing so yeah yeah that's super super cool so wild thank you so much yeah so that's what i had for you both today uh we're gonna take a quick break and when we return it'll be victoria okay well we're back and uh, we're going to stick with the ocean. I am, however, going to be talking about a bird. A bird on the ocean. A bird. Mm, uh, a, intriguing. Yes, a marine bird. I mentioned this animal last week. Uh, and having discovered oh, yes. the awesome weirdness of the crested auklet, I just had to give it yeah. its own episode. <laughs> yes. Have either of you, other than my mentioning it uh, and its strange tangerine scent last week have you heard about this bird do you know anything about it Kirk? not at all uh, i mean i'm a birder so i'm familiar yeah. with the crested auklet in general 
but well, I'm not an expert on it by any means. I know. Yeah. Nothing. So it, it's weird in a lot of ways that go beyond smelling like tangerines. Um, and first of all, uh, Crested Ocklets, their, their Latin name is Athea Christatella. They're a small water bird. They look a bit like a puffin in shape, and they live in coastal Alaska. They're about 18 to 27 centimeters. That's 7 to 10 inches. And they are pretty much dark gray all over. They're kind of darker on the back, looks more black, a little lighter underneath. Mm -hmm. But they have a bright orange beak that is tipped with yellow. They have white eyes, and they have a thin line of white feathers that go back from each eye along the side of its head, sort of like exaggerated cat's eye eyeliner. It's like a swoosh. Yeah, yeah swoosh. Yeah, exactly. Huh. And in breeding season, they have this goofy looking crest of black feathers that springs from the forehead right above the bill and it curves forward over the beak. That's Usually so think of silly. a bird's crest going backward. It just Yeah, it's hangs like a bad there. colic that kind of comes over. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty awesome. Oh, so my or, hair. or a little it. like an anglerfish uh, oh, rod yeah, yeah. in some yeah. ways, I guess. Yeah. All these just, connections between our, uh, our yeah. topics here. And uh, there is something unusual about their beaks other than the standout color. And you two were both talking about bioluminescence. I'm not talking about bioluminescence, but I am talking about something related, which is fluorescence. <laughs> their, beaks, their beaks fluoresce uh, under certain wavelengths of light, blue or ultraviolet. Really? Cool. Yeah. Gosh, I wonder how many other birds do that we haven't bothered to look at. Well, there's been some research about that, I think. People are starting to look. So just as a little background, many living things are fluorescent, including many types of sea creatures, which shouldn't be surprising. Uh, Frogs, lots of arthropods, and a few mammals, including the platypus. I think maybe you talked about that, Rachel. Yeah, we've talked about Mm -hmm. it. Yeah, sure have. And some types of birds also have fluorescent feathers, as we mentioned last week, including owls and parrots. But the crested auklet was the first bird that was discovered to have a non-feather part of its body that's fluorescent. Cool. And this discovery, cool. similar to flying squirrels, was made by accident when some researchers oh. who were collecting dead auklets to turn into study skins for museums, they were, it was raining, there was some horrible weather, and they were stuck inside. And <laughs> they started cool. playing around with a blue dive light. <laughs> and they were just shining it on, around the room on various objects and discovered that the dead auklet's beaks just lit up. Amazing. <laughs> oh, <wow>. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I love, I love it when science happens by accident. That's so great. Yeah. Absolutely. So they subsequently tested two other species of auklet to see if they would also do it. They did not. Only the crested auklets huh. light up. Uh, huh. And they published. Oh, okay. They published. This was around... 2015, I think, 2017. Um, And actually, a few years after their discovery, the close relatives, the puffins, were also found to have fluorescent beaks. All right. Yeah. It's actually not their whole beak, uh, just the bill plates, which are ornamental structures that appear during breeding season. And I mentioned earlier that the forehead crests also only appear during breeding season. And from here on out, we're going to talk about breeding season. And I am just warning you, it's going to get kind of kinky. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay. <laughs> so sure. 
They nested Not big. Where I thought this was going. No, there are a lot of weird things about this bird. They nest in big colonies in rocky shoreline areas. And apparently these colonies can be smelled from more than 100 meters away because they smell like yeah. tangerines. Oh, I, I was thinking it, it was that. like the yeah. fecal material. <laughs> Sometimes bird nesting areas are real stinky, but, yeah. you know, tangerine, that doesn't sound so bad. So fresh. No. Uh, in the world of the crested auklet, breeding is a group activity. Uh, okay. Yeah. First of all, oh my god, it's so weird. I'm gonna lose it. Sorry, okay. children. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Are you gonna be able to get through this? You are amazing, Tori. Okay. First, give, give me a moment. Gotta take some breaths. First of all, um, this You're bird was up, the f- out building up expectations here, quite, you know. <laughs> yeah. This was the first bird that where it was discovered that both the male and the female exhibit mate selection. Um, so it's mutual sexual selection. Okay. Instead of the females choosing the males, which is kind of the usual thing with birds. That's why male birds tend to be showier and, and more colorful. Sure. So the males and the females are in this big group colony. They're all, you know, the, a male and a female um, will check each other out, look at their crests, see if they look good. The male also starts doing some display behaviors and noises. And if they like what they're seeing of each other, they move on to the rough sniff. That is R-U-F-F. Rough sniff. Oh, I thought R-U-G-H. All right, the rough sniff. Okay, that's different. Yep. We are, so we're back to the tangerine smell. It's concentrated in a patch of feathers on the back of their neck, uh, which is called the rough. And the female mm-hmm. will just like stick her beak deep in there in the male's rough and get some good sniffs in. And then the birds uh, both make some cackling noises and rub their beaks together and then they'll twine <laughs> their necks around each other. Oh. While all this is going on, a crowd is gathered. <laughs> Okay. And, um, oh, yeah, okay. the other birds see what's going on and they really want to get close to the action. So as, uh, as the main pair is getting to know each other, a bunch of the other lower ranking birds, males, females, juveniles, they gather around and each of them is trying to get as close as possible to the central couple, um, because they want to get going, in, Hoo-ah! they want to get in on the rough sniffing and the neck rubbing. And um, they're, they're uh, like, stepping uh, all over each other in order to get closer in. So it's, like, this big group, wow. somewhat li- appropriately called a scrum, just mm-hmm. like rugby. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of there, neck sniffing going on in rugby, from what I understand. There are some pictures you can find of this scene, and it is uh, pretty goofy looking. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So all this is just the prelude. No actual mating has yet taken place. And... Uh, the couple then takes a few days to think it over and make sure they're right for each other. And uh, oh, then that's they very they, prudent, yeah. Yeah, they head out to sea to do the actual deed. But another scrum forms out there. I was gonna say to get away from the scrum. <laughs> oh no, 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 no. no. This, they need to. Define this has not been studied one. quite as well. I'm never gonna look at tangerines the same way. Yeah. Uh, it's been it hasn't been studied quite as well as the the first part of the courtship ritual since it's a little harder to access being out at sea. Sure. Yeah. So that is uh, 
that is the sex life of the crested auklet. Uh, the latest research I found was that there appears to be sexual selection at play in the bill fluorescence. And uh, males appeared to be, they, they set up some decoys with fluorescent beaks and without fluorescent beaks. Males appeared to be attracted to decoys with fluorescent bills more than non-fluorescent decoys. For females, okay. it didn't seem to make a difference. Or, you know, maybe they were just better at detecting the decoys. Right. Yeah. So uh, that is what I have about crested auklets. My main sources this week were Audubon and a 2017 article from the Wilson Journal of Ornithology about the fluorescent bill plates, as well as the original article about the uh, figuring out the bills were fluorescent. Great. It didn't get quite as freaky as I was afraid it was going to get. So I think we're all right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I hope I didn't, I hope I didn't raise expectations too much. It just, the, the pictures that accompanied this article were just so funny. <laughs> there was a, there was one of uh, a, a set of three, uh, just each one with the, it's bill stuck in the nape of the neck of the auklet in front of it. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Taking a big old sniff. Yes. You smell just, like tangerines. Wait yeah. a minute, she smells yeah. like tangerines. Oh my god! Oh, we, we all, all smell, smell like tangerines. Like tangerines. <laughs> Everybody, come on in, get a sniff. This one smells like tangerines. <laughs> that is what I have this week. Uh, Thanks. I made it through. That's and... what we all got this week. Yeah. Yeah. Woohoo! This is a wild one. Thanks, everybody. Yeah. yeah. Uh, fun talking to you, and see you in a few weeks. Bye. Thanks everyone for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.